It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast hosted by Bloomberg Intelligence, the investment research platform of Bloomberg LP. This podcast series examines the intersection of business, policy, and law. I'm Elliot Stein. I'm an analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence covering financials litigation. And my name is Nathan Dean, and I'm an analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence covering financials policy. So we're delighted today to be joined uh, by Mick Mulvaney, former congressman from South Carolina, former OMB director under President Trump, and also former acting White House chief of staff and acting CFPB director. This is the inaugural episode of this podcast series, and we're obviously really excited to have as our first guest someone who has seen Washington from the inside, from multiple perspectives, and who can give us you know, a lot of unique insights about the intersection of Washington and business. So, Director Mulvaney, welcome, and thank you very much for joining us. Elliot, uh, Nathan, thanks for having me. I didn't realize this was the very first one. That's a lot of pressure on me. It's a lot of pressure on you, a lot of pressure on us, but I think we're going to do just fine. Um, so you obviously have a fascinating and very successful life story. You've been a practicing lawyer, a congressman, director of the Office of Management and Budget, acting White House Chief of Staff, acting CFPB Director, Special Envoy to Northern Ireland. You're a consultant now. You know, that's, that's an impressive resume. Uh, we thought it'd be interesting for you to tell us and our listeners you know, how you got to where you are, which role you like the most which role was the most challenging, and then maybe also tell us about what you're doing now. Oh, I, I don't think that the, <clears throat> the story about how I got here now is, is, is very interesting. Um, the, the most uh, challenging job, that I, I t- let's do it this way. The best job I ever had um, in my entire life was the director of the Office of Management and Budget. Um, it's the job I, I, I wanted once I got to Washington. I remember being in 2011, being on the Budget Committee, and we interviewed the CBO director, whose name I cannot remember because as I get older, I cannot remember people's names. Um, but I remember going through that committee hearing going, wow, I, you know, I haven't heard of that job since, um, what's his name, David Stockman had it in the 1980s under Ronald Reagan. But boy, does that sound like a really cool job. Um, and I did a little bit of work with, um, with uh, Rick Perry in 2012, uh, which included, by the way, uh, debate prep. Please don't tell anybody that. Um, uh, so, but the, the, I was hoping if Rick had become president to be the OMB director, um, then I worked with Rand Paul in 2016, uh, with the same sort of understanding. Um, and then I ended up getting the job from somebody that I didn't even work for to get elected, which was with Donald Trump. Uh, the job is the job that I think many people think they are getting when they get elected to Congress. It is a hundred percent policy all of the time. It's the real nuts and bolts of how the government works. I mean, for, for geeks, for budget geeks, for numbers geeks, for government geeks, it's it's just heaven. And um, that was the best job I think I ever had. Um, it's not surprising, by the way, that uh, uh, that transitioned into the chief of staff position. I think that has happened half a dozen times in, in my lifetime. In fact, I think the last four administrations had chiefs of staff that had previously been directors of the Office of Management and Budget. There's a reason for that. We can talk about it if you want to. But uh, That was the best job I think I've ever had in my entire life and enjoyed every single minute of every 16-hour day. Yeah, that's super fascinating. And and so maybe tell us a little bit about what you're doing now, too. Um, Yeah, not much. Trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. I I don't know what you (laughs) you do after you have your dream job, right? Um, 
So uh, I'm, I'm doing a, a, a little bit of advising um, to companies how to deal with the federal government, doing a lot of work overseas um, on what it's like to do business uh, with the U.S. government. So companies that are dealing with regulatory issues, again, most of it overseas. The political climate here is really, really bad for former Trump people, um, which is fine. I mean, that's that's the way the pendulum swings. Um, the Europeans don't like Trump any more than the Americans do, it seems, but they don't care about the politics. They just want to make money. Um, so I'm doing a good bit of that. Uh, I was involved in crypto fairly early. I don't remember when we started the, the caucus. David Schweikert and I started the blockchain caucus. I 2013, 14, I can't remember. All I remember is that Bitcoin was exactly $200 um, when I started the caucus. I did not buy any because I thought it was a conflict of interest. I had staffers who did, who have now since retired. Uh, they're very thankful for that, I think. Um, and I got involved in crypto very early on and have stayed involved in that. I'm on the board of the Digital Chamber of Commerce in Washington, D.C., one of the leading trade associations for blockchain and crypto. And um, so I, I'm, I'm advising a couple of smaller startups in, the, in the, navigating the crypto world, and that has been fun. So um, I do a good bit of television radio, including with you folks. I always enjoy being on Bloomberg, both, uh, both on audio and on video. Um, but again, mostly just trying to figure out uh, what to do. I don't know what I do for a living, um, Elliot, but I do know it takes all of my time. <laughs> Those are good answers. Um, all right, so you know, why don't we stick with the crypto topic, and I'll kick it over to Nathan to to, to go from there. Yeah, you know, let's talk about your history of crypto, and you know, like you just mentioned, you were one of the uh, you know the earliest proponents of blockchain technology. I mean, here we are, like eight or nine years after you founded the uh, the blockchain caucus, and you know, I just real quickly, what was the first time you heard about crypto, and why did it pique your interest? Yeah, uh, I was at a conference. Uh, I was on the Financial Services Committee, I think, at the time, or at least I was. In, I was. I know I was on the Budget Committee at least, and I got invited to speak at a conference. And my topic that day was the gold standard. And I'm not one of these hardcore, you know, pro gold standard guys, but I know about it. I understand some of the the advantages of it. So I was sort of there to try and give both sides of the gold standard on a panel discussion about whatever. I can't remember what it was. And there was a young woman there who introduced me to the in the crowd for the first time to this thing called. Bitcoin. And as she sat there and she described it, sort of this introduction, introductory lecture on what 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 um, what Bitcoin was, I'm like, you know what, there's there's a good bit of, of, of overlap there between what Bitcoin is and what a gold standard could be. And so I, I talked with her afterwards and uh, started doing a little bit of research. And that's when I discovered the underlying technology of blockchain. And Bitcoin is fascinating to me. I, I think it's I think it's interesting. I don't invest in it. I've never owned a, 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 a Bitcoin in my life. But it was blockchain um, that really, really got my attention, um, because as I was sitting there doing the research, trying to figure out what this was, this distributed ledger technology, I'm like, you know what? Um, this has the potential to take every three-party transaction in the world and make it into a two-party transaction. I had practiced law uh, for a while, did a lot of real estate, and know what a three-party transaction is, know what escrow is, know why we have a register of deeds. Those are all three-party transactions. I've been in Washington, financial services, learning about uh, credit card companies work, three-party transactions. In fact, when I'm not on the radio talking to people in public, I say pretty much all of our re uh, interactions except sex are probably three-party transactions um, in the world. And someone pointed out that some sex is three-party transactions, but we've probably wandered off the topic now. Anyway. Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a different podcast. Exactly. But I, I, it occurred to me, if you have the ability to, to make three-party transactions, two-party transactions, you have the ability to change the world. Um, and that's what really, really got my attention. That's what I decided, you know what, we need to focus on this blockchain thing, because this could be as big as the internet is. Uh, I still believe that, by the way. 
I think that uh, uh, crypto has sort of become a distraction on top of blockchain, but I think that the underlying technology and the concept is one of the most uh, earth-changing things that I've been involved with in my entire adult career. So you mentioned distraction, and I, I think that's a good word to, to, to go to our next question. And it's really about in the light of the FTX collapse, you know, I, I, there was a lot of momentum last year in terms of work being done on certain bills. You know, you mentioned the Digital Chamber of Commerce and obviously FTX and Coinbase have spent a lot of time on the Hill talking about bills. Um, you know, I, I just it's really a two part question. And the first part is, is that, you know, you know, many in the cryptocurrency industry have called for this new regulatory framework, aka there's we have a new asset class. And then you have others like SEC Chairman Gary Gensler, who've said that, you know, 93, 90, 1930s era securities law is still applicable. You know, does there need to be a new regulatory framework from Congress? And if so, you know, what do you think that should that look like? Should it define what a security is versus a commodity? Should the SEC get more power? Or should the CFTC power? And I guess the third part to my two-part question is, do you think something can pass in this new divided government? Yeah, let me let's do the last one first, because the answer is yes. Um, you know, I'm close friends with Patrick McHenry. I've known Patrick for probably 20 years now. Um, and I was very excited when it was become clear that the Republicans were taking the majority and he was going to be the, the committee chairman on financial services. And then especially pleased last week when I found out he was creating a new digital asset subcommittee He's putting French Hill from Arkansas in charge. French is probably one of the, if not the most capable members of that financial services committee on the Republican side. So clearly um, McCarthy, uh, McHenry has a great deal of, of, of uh, trust in him. And I think what, it, what, what Patrick would tell you if he were on this podcast is, look, there's not very many bipartisan um, topics right now in Washington, maybe antipathy towards China, maybe you know, distrust of big tech. But the third one would be an interest in digital assets. Doesn't mean you're for it, doesn't mean you're against it. It's just, you're sort of looking at it. Both parties wanna know more about it. And that's a good sign. Why is that a good sign? Because as of right now, let's call it digital assets as sort of the asset class, um, is not politicized. Um, even despite some Republican efforts to try and, and, and taint the Democrats with the, the uh, Sam Bankman-Fried uh, financial uh, contributions, uh, the bottom line is still that this is not perceived as a Republican topic or a Democrat topic. And that's a really, really good sign uh, for the likely uh, chance of having a decent piece of legislation. The FTX thing was certainly a big deal. Uh, did it move the needle? You know, listen, I, I've, uh, I was in Switzerland last week at a digital conference, had some great conversations, was talking to, uh, to Anthony Scaramucci, who I overlapped with for uh, 11 days. Um, which has now become a, a term of art. Um, 11 days in the White House is called a mooch. Um, and, uh, you know, he's been in crypto for a long time and he and I have discussed this before. I posited the thesis that FTX was going to make it more likely that the CFTC would fall out of favor as the, uh, as the chosen uh, lead regulator and it would give more strength to the SEC. And uh, Anthony disagreed and said that um, he didn't see it that way at all. He thought the CFTC still... Um, sort of had was in the ascendancy on on where Congress wanted to put the uh, the lead uh, regulatory authority. So I think the 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 jury's very still much out on that. I I prefer the CFTC if for no other reason than you know your your question had a little bit of of of, of bias in it. You know about a 1933 security regulations, but it's not wrong. Um, Gensler is anti 
um, uh, blockchain crypto. And, and I, I don't want a regulator who's anti. I want a regulator who is interested in, in, in seeing what they can do to, to, to encourage innovation, to encourage growth, to protect consumers, but not to make the unilateral decision that this asset class or that asset class is good or bad. I, I want the market to do that, not a regulator. So if you ask me, is it SEC versus CFTC? I, I come down to the CFTC side, but mostly because it's Gensler not, and, not, um, and not just because the institutional entity uh, of the SEC. Um, there was three parts to your two-part question. I can't remember what the first part was. I was going backwards. If you, if you remember, we can do it that. <laughs> no, next- you actually got it all. You know, I, I actually, you know, just you, talking about the SEC, for example, you know, was do you think that there's any regulatory or policy blame that can be assigned to the SEC in terms of uh, FTX and even just some of the, you know, what you hear for a lot from the crypto community is there's this like uncertainty where they're, you know, we just don't know the, the you know, the, they'd say we don't know the, the playing field. We don't know. And, you know, there's been a lot of criticism levied at the SEC to not bringing forth soon enough enforcement actions you know, does the SEC have anything to blame here? Or is this just a situation where, you know, Congress needs to step in and figure it out and we'll just move forward? You know, certainty is one of those words that is it sort of, you know, gets a lot of attention in Washington, D.C. Everybody wants a lot of certainty. Um, life is not very certain. So, um, I mean, you know, we don't know if the Fed's going to raise rates a quarter point, a half point or something else next week. There's no certainty there. So certainty is sort of an overused word. I think what you're looking for is is clarity from the government um, as to how it's going to treat an asset class, um, how they're going to do rulemaking, what their purposes are. Um, and I think that's more important to focus on. I don't blame the, this SEC for the FTX uh, situation. I blame Sam Bankman-Fried and his, and his, and his, and his group. Um, I don't see FTX as a crypto thing. I see FTX as a, as a fraud thing, as a theft thing. Uh, Bernie Madoff was in a regulated industry. Enron was in a regulated industry, and they still figured out a way to break the law and steal people's money. So folks are, you know, bad people are always going to do that. And of course, I say that these are allegations are not proven, so I don't want to get sued. Um, you know, so we'll say, you know, assuming the allegations are true as, as we as sort of as we couch this discussion. But I don't blame the SEC for SBF's um, behavior. I blame him for his behavior. And I don't think that any particular guardrails w- would have stopped somebody who would, seems to have been that intent on taking people's money. So no, I, I don't I don't look at the government as protecting us from all ills in life. I do think it's incumbent upon the government to uh, give business clear guidelines. It's one of the things, by the way, the industry has been uh, requesting for the very from the very beginning. I was in the small business committee in 2011. And uh, we had a hearing um, late in that term. So it's probably early 2013 on uh, asset classes. And all the industry wanted at that time is tell us what we are. That was it. And I think at that time, and th- you did ask this question about, is it, you know, is it a security? Is it, is it, is it a commodity? Is it something else? Um, and I remember doing research at the time that I think it was the Germans who created its own separate asset class. So it wasn't this or that. It was its own thing. Um, th- that's that's what I want the government to do. Sometimes you want the government to make a decision, even if it's wrong, because at least if they make a decision, you can plan and you can go forward. Um, that that's not certainty, that's clarity, and that's what I think it's incumbent upon the government to give. And I think that's what the industry is looking for, has been looking for, uh, and will continue to look for. Maybe um, with this new Republican control of Financial Services Committee and the, the still bipartisan interest in the industry, we will get clarity out of the government, out of this Congress. 
So, Derek Mulvaney, you know, in light of the FTX collapse, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about centralized versus decentralized. And really, like, I guess my question is, is that, like, where's the future of crypto? Do you see it? I mean, you're doing a lot of work right now in this space. You know, is it in the centralized space like FTX or is it more decentralized so that, you know, maybe it's the new technology in the future? Yeah, I don't know if you all had a chance to watch the Senate hearings. I think I watched a little bit of the Senate and the House hearings, and a couple folks raised that issue about centralized versus decentralized finance, and they tried to draw you know, a, a, a line from Mt. Gox all the way to, to FTX, and the one sort of central feature of that is that those are all centralized um, you know, financial institutions. That's where all of the, the difficulty has been. I don't know if we say fraud, but that's, that's, that's where, the, that's where the, the landmines have been. And there's never been a circumstance of a, you know, a major decentralized problem. I think that's where the industry is going. It's, it, it creates some interesting challenges because the decentralized system looks a lot less like you know, the traditional banking system. So then the question becomes, you know, how, do you, how do you reconcile those two things? How do you take decentralized finance and, and put it that, that square peg in a round hole um, uh, you asked me earlier about some of the work I'm doing uh, uh, overseas. I work for a company called the Astra Protocol, which is doing KYC and AML for uh, DeFi. And it's a, it's a fascinating technology. And I think there's a lot of folks looking at how do we take this new looking thing of, of DeFi and, and put it in the, 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 the you know, sort of the, the square peg in the round hole of, of what we've got right now. So I think if, once folks figure out how to do that, Take all the benefits uh, of what we've seen with blockchain, but figure out a way to to meld it into um, the, the more traditional sort of uh, environment. I think that's going to be a huge success. You saw the DOJ announce a, uh, um, a money laundering case, I think, just yesterday against a, a, a Russian crypto firm. If you can do KYC, if you can do AML properly, that kind of stuff um, doesn't happen. Um, so that's why I think folks like Astra and some of the other folks I'm working with are, are in an interesting place at the cutting edge, because I think that's where the uh, that's where the future is going. I, I just wanted to go back to something you said, where you you know you were talking about the um, the discussion you were having with uh, Scaramucci and how you thought you know the FTX collapse would result in Congress giving the SEC more um, power, um, you know, rather than the CFTC. And Scaramucci had a different view. I'm sort of curious why why you think that, and sort of where the difference is between you know um, your view and the opposite view. Yeah, um, it's really interesting. A lot of it, I think, has to do with politics. Um, you know, Anthony's very politically savvy, but he's never been elected. He, and he knows a hell of a lot more about markets than I do. And uh, he's forgotten more than, than I will ever know. So I think we just came to look at it from two different perspectives. Um, and I don't know which one of us is right. We might both be wrong. Um, but I looked at it as, well, if SBF was in it um, and he was lobbying hard for the CFTC, that will carry a taint. Uh, and that will push the, the needle over towards the SEC. And if I had to put words in his mouth, and I want to make clear that I'm doing that, I hope I'm not violating any, any confidences that I don't think our conversation was off the record. I think if, if I had to put words in Anthony's mouth, it would be that fundamentally the CFTC is still the right place to do it. And, what, and uh, the, the SBF situation with FTX won't change that. And that the CFTC is still the right place to do it, and that that will ultimately prevail on the merit. So again, I think it's it's the exact right conversations that you want to have when you're trying to sort of looking at the industry. You get two different perspectives, and the folks make up their own mind. I'm sure Congress is going through the same analysis. I'm sure there's members of Congress who are like, yeah, you know, I was sort of leaning towards CFTC, but ah, boy, Sam Bankman-Fried liked that, and he's a really he could he could be a real distraction here. So um, let's go look back and look at the SEC, and there could be other folks who look at it and say, you know what? I don't care what FTX was all about. I think that was a fraud case. I still think CFTC is right. 
let's push it in that direction. So I think the, the, the conversation that I had with Anthony um, last week is probably, um, you know, in a nutshell, sort of analogous to what a lot of what's going on on the Hill. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And, and like you said, that's exactly, you know, the debate we're going to see play out in Congress over you know, you know, the next several months. Um, all right. So turning from crypto to let, let's move on to the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, for those who are not as you know, intimately familiar with it as, as you are. Um, Actually, that's not even the name you wanted to call it, right? You, you, uh, one of your first moves uh, as uh, acting director of the CFPB was to change the name, but I, that that's neither here nor there, um, unless you want to talk about it. Um, but really, I, I want to, I wanted to talk more about um, the Fifth Circuit's ruling in October, which was, you know, pretty monumental. Um, it was in a lawsuit by payday lenders challenging the CFPB's payday rule, as you know. Um, and the Fifth Circuit vacated the rule, but more, you know, more importantly, I guess, was the, the reason behind the ruling, um, and that was that the Fifth Circuit held that the, the CFPB's funding structure is unconstitutional because it comes out of the Federal Reserve's funding and not directly from congressional appropriations. You know, that, that, that's a pretty big decision. Um, it's likely to have profound implications for the future of the CFPB. Um, you know, uh, you're a former director of the, or acting director of the Bureau. Um, you've also been an outspoken critic of the CFPB. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts uh, about the Fifth Circuit's ruling. Yeah, uh, and the name change was interesting, by the way. I tried to change it to the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection, and everybody, you know, looked at me cross-eyed and said, why would you start there? I said, well, because I read the statute. You know, I'm doing the research on that. I knew what the CFPB was from my time on the on the House Financial Services Committee. And then the president asked me to go over and take over it. I was doing double duty between there and OMB. Those were interesting days. Um, and I'm like, OK, I'm going to go over and run this place. I'll read the statute. And then the first line, it says you know, Congress creates the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection. And I'm like, boy, you really think maybe the name of the of the entity should should match what Congress created. So apparently that was uh that was a, a, a heresy of the highest order inside the building, but that's not your question. Um, I, I, the, the, I, uh, you want to talk about the Fifth Circuit decision. I was actually in National Airport, I don't know, three weeks ago going through security, and I hear this voice behind me. says, hey, Mick, and I turn around, and it's Richard Cordray, who was my predecessor. <laughs> as director. Uh, and we had a, a really brief conversation about that. Of course, the, the, you know, the sell a law decision had, coming out, had to come out out of the Supreme Court, I, I can't remember, it was two years ago. Um, and another piece of the CFPB, uh, the, uh, the the status of the director and the unconstitutionality of, of, of the statute as, as it dealt with the whether or not the president could could fire the uh, the the, uh, the the director of the or the organization. But anyway, Richard and I had a good conversation about the funding. I I, I think it's a fascinating decision. You know, of all the, I don't like the fact that the CFPB. Um, is funded out of the, the Federal Reserve. Keep in mind, for folks who aren't familiar with this, it's, it's a little bit arcane piece of uh, CFPB history, but it's a very interesting insight into what the CFPB was created to be. Not just what it was created to do, but to be. It was created, it's a brainchild, most folks know of Elizabeth Warren. It was created to be outside of politics. Her attitude was that if you allowed politics to influence this, then sometimes the Republicans would have control and sometimes the Democrats would, would have control, and that was not good that you needed to have something that was outside of politics. Um, so she created almost, or at least something that was a, a, a sort of strived to be the perfect left-wing permanent bureaucracy um, with people that were hired entirely by the left and then, then thereafter couldn't be fired, um, that had almost zero accountability to, um, 
to uh, uh, to Capitol Hill. One of my favorite days of my entire professional career was when I went down to testify to Congress. My opening comment was, I'm here to testify, but I don't have to because you folks put in the statute that uh, language that suggests that I don't even have to be here to talk to you. I'm doing it, but I'm not obligated to do it. That's how far removed the CFPB is uh, from Congress. And of course, a big piece of that was funding. Instead of giving Congress, as it has with almost every other aspect uh, of, the, of the executive branch of government, control over the spending, it took that away. The CFPB uh, Act, uh, uh, Dodd-Frank took that away from Congress and essentially said, look, um, the CFPB gets its money automatically as a, from the Federal Reserve, and it has the right to draw down on a certain formula. And it is not an exaggeration, guys, not an exaggeration to say that at any time during my directorship, I could have written, handwritten on a napkin, please give me $800 million, okay, walked across the street or down the street to the Federal Reserve, given it to the right people, and they would have had to give the money to the CFPB. Um, that, that, that was the funding mechanism that was set up. Um, and that's what's under attack in the uh, in the Fifth Circuit. That being said, I'm I, I haven't read the opinion, so I, I I fully admit that. I'd be curious to know what the unconstitutional nature of that is, because we do that already with the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is outside of the appropriation system of, of Congress, um, and I'd be curious to see how the Supreme Court. I assume it's going to take. In fact, I think it already has taken it up. Um, or granted cert um, that uh, um, yeah no not they haven't yet but um you know the CFPB petitioned for cert and the industry group that um, you know brought the lawsuit in the first place is actually asking for the Supreme Court not to grant cert on the constitutional issue because they say you know they obviously they don't want to disrupt that ruling um, yeah. but they do want they do they do want cert to be granted on some of the other um, claims that were rejected by the Fifth Circuit actually so so we're still yeah. waiting to find out if the Supreme Court Very take it. Yeah. So again, the constitutionality—I assume someone has challenged the funding mechanism for the Federal Reserve over the course of the last hundred years, and that it's been upheld constitutionally. So, I'd be curious to see um, how that wedge gets driven between uh, the Fed and the CFPB. But it's a fascinating, um, a fascinating uh, process, uh, and just goes to show you how unusual, how unusual uh, the CFPB is in its um, in its structure and its operation. Yeah, and I think one of the arguments, or at least one one of one of the reasons that the Fifth Circuit cited um, for the CFPB being unconstitutionally funded in, in their opinion is that it, it sort of has this double layer of insularity from Congress, right? So right, they're getting the funding from the Fed, which is essentially getting, um, you know, you know, is getting some funding in a certain way, not directly from Congress, but Congress has articulated how the Fed will get funding. So I think I think that's the concern that there's this double layer. Um, uh, but but I'm curious. So you know, let's say the Supreme Court does take it. Let's say they affirm it. Let's say the current um, funding mechanism is unconstitutional. You know, how difficult do you think it would be for you know, sort of what happens next? Like the CFPB would have to go through the normal appropriations process. How difficult do you see that being? Yeah, it's a fascinating question because of course the the court if the court's doing what courts are supposed to do, it doesn't really have the right to write legislation. Right, it has the right to strike it out. Um, so if that particular provision is unconstitutional, then uh, do you have to write a new appropriating section to the to the bill? Would that have to be passed? Would it automatically simply be treated as as something that's on appropriations for for Congress? It's a it's a really good question, and and goes to the larger issue. The larger issue is this: is is this the, is this whole thing constitutional in the first place? I never liked the place, and folks, I like the people, but I never liked the idea. I, I shouldn't say that. I like the idea of having one stop shopping for consumer protection. Somebody asked me 
I did an interview, I don't know, about a year ago, and they said, what what one nice thing can you say about Elizabeth Warren and and uh, and the CFPB part of Dodd-Frank? And I said, the idea of having a single regulator when it comes to anything is really, really powerful, and I think uh, good. Uh, you know, the, when I do work uh, with all these European companies, they always ask me, well, you know, who's my regulator? I'm like, what do you do? And they tell me, like, well, you've got four or five or six different regulators that, that, that just drives them nuts. The concept of this one regulator, I think, is is an admirable sort of goal. That being said, this is the worst possible way to achieve it. And I really, really, really um, wanted some instruction um, from the White House to, to shut the place down and lock the doors and just uh, pay the folks because I had to pay them. Uh, legally, but not not allow the thing to exist. And um, that was in the middle of the Mueller investigation. I remember the White House counsel at the time looking at me and said, Mick, I got bigger things to worry about than the CFPB. Just go over there and do what you can. And uh, so uh, we were that close to actually um, shuttering the place and seeing what would happen after that. But uh, that may goes back to your uh, your Dunkin Donuts question. So as to was why I did that, because it was a very interesting relationship with the with the organization when I was there, because I didn't like it from the get go. So does that mean that we can say that you're a Dunkin' Donuts fan and Krispy Kreme not so much, or was it uh, more just uh, on your way to work? It was on my way to work. It was it was a trick that we learned. It was a very interesting insight into Washington, D.C. and how Washington works. It was a trick I learned when I was in Congress. Whenever we had protesters at my district office back here in South Carolina, we would feed them and, you know, go get pizza and get donuts or whatever and just say, look, you're welcome. We love the fact you're here protesting. You know, we're not going to be nasty about it. Have you all had lunch? Um, and your constituents for the most part. And, um, you know, we get you, get you coffee and donuts and, you know, sit and chat about the issues and you can protest you want to, and, you know, we'll go about our business. So I, I, I figured we'd do that. And I would gonna, was going to take these uh, donuts um, to the protesters on my way to work. Well, I go to work fairly early. I think I was there at seven or seven 30 in the morning and I, I had all these donuts and uh, there were no protesters yet. And um, I got credit, by the way, for bringing the employees, the, uh, the, the the folks who work there, donuts on my first day. And we got good press out of that. But the truth of the matter was it was for the protesters who didn't show up until nine o'clock. Um, and what I learned later was that these were protesters for hire um, and that they, they weren't supposed they weren't on the clock until nine o'clock. Um, so it was a little bit different than the folks I dealt with back home. And that was a that was a really interesting insight into how to Washington works. The protest for hire business is a cottage industry in Washington, D.C., and I think that's just an absolutely fascinating sort of sidebar to how the town works. I think that might be the biggest takeaway from this uh, episode, that uh, if you're going to be protesting, you want to get there early because you may get donuts out of it. Yeah, um, and to your point, um, I'm a Krispy Kreme man. Uh, I'm from the Carolinas, and the Krispy Kreme is down at Dunkin' Donuts. I don't know where they're from, but I grew up on Krispy Kreme donuts. Um, my son uh, lives uh, in uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina now, which is my hometown. And there's a Krispy Kreme donut place across the street. And they have a promotion, which the when the hot donuts now sign is on, you get buy one, get one free. So uh, it's it's being handed down in the family. The, uh, the clearly Krispy Kreme over Duncan every single time. <laughs> that, that, that's great. Um, so let's just let's turn it to debt ceiling real quick. Uh, you know, just because obviously that's the something that's always in the news cycle right now. You know, we even just saw recently that. Uh, uh, the Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen, sent out the letter to Congress essentially saying June 5th is the date that uh, uh, extraordinary measures runs out. You know, our analysis says that it could go a little bit further, but we'd love to know what do you think is going to happen with the debt ceiling? Is this a uh, is this a debt ceiling crisis? Will the U.S. be able to avoid a breach? You know, And if so, do you have any thoughts on how they would do it? 
Yeah, we're, we're going to raise the debt ceiling. Okay, the question is under under what terms and conditions? What's going to be part of the deal? I think that's the right way to look at it. That's how Barack Obama looked at it. That's how John Boehner looked at it back in 2000, when I think last time we did this, 2011 or 2013. I can't remember. Um, you know, you've, you've got divided government in Washington, D.C. You, you need to compromise on this. It's, I, I cannot believe Biden is getting um, a free pass on his comments about how he's not ne- going to negotiate on this. You're not going to negotiate on it. What's the justification for that? The law is what the law is, which is that you have a debt ceiling. Why do you have a debt ceiling? So that every now, you, now and then you have to raise it. You have a discussion about why you have to raise it. That, that's why we have it. If, if Biden is right and you don't have any negotiations and there's no compromise at all on raising the debt ceiling, then then the debt ceiling doesn't need to be there at all. Now, I know a lot of Democrats feel that there shouldn't be a debt ceiling law, but there is one. And last time I checked, you know, they're sworn to uphold the Constitution and the, the law is what the law is. So um, it's a very strange position to take. And I cannot believe he's getting as much a free pass as he is. is should he give in to everything the Republicans are ask, going to be asking for in the debt ceiling? Absolutely not. Because the Democrats control the White House and the Senate. So, I mean, if you want to do the simple math, you know, it's a two-third, one-third type of deal. The Democrats get a little something. The Republicans get a little something. That's how it gets raised. It's absolutely going to get raised. Um, as much as the uh, former uh, Tea Party House Freedom Caucus guy and me says, look, I don't think we should raise it at all. And I think we should look at prioritization of payments because the one thing that Washington lacks is a, is a cost-benefit analysis view on life. Uh, they never measure one pro- project against another. They just measure it against what they want. Uh, and they never have to choose between two or three things. That's how you get $31 trillion in debt. And by the way, both parties have done that to us, not not the Democrats alone that have have, have, have put us here. Um, so I, I think it's going to be great wailing and gnashing of teeth, as there always is on every government shutdown and every debt ceiling crisis. There's going to be all these um, horror stories written about defaulting on the debt and what it means for the world economy and the reserve status of the currency and all that. And that's just, you know, media hoping for a plane crash because it sells more, more, um, more, more, uh, more newspapers than a plane landing on time and, and safely. But I think, you know, the last 64 times we've done this, we've done it. And I think the 65th time, and I'm making up that number, I can't remember how many times we've raised it, is going to be the same. Is there going to be political negotiations? I hope so. That's how, that's how the, the government is supposed to work. Uh, and I hope if anybody, if anybody refuses to negotiate, that they get called out um, for for violating the spirit uh, of the law, if not the letter. You know, just one last question for me um, is really the usage of ESG has gotten a lot of criticism from Republicans over the last couple of years, especially when you talk about banks in the, the usage of ESG. You know, we even just saw recently a, uh, a tweet from Representative Scalise saying that CEOs are going to have to come testify about these practices and so forth like that, you know, what would you think, or I guess what is, what's going to happen with specifically in your old committee, the House Financial Services Committee, and some of the other House committees in terms of ESG and how banks or CEOs going to be testifying? Is there going to be legislation? And what is, I think, the Republican goal for this year? Well, I think the Republican goal is to, is to simply not allow corporations to have it both ways, uh, especially big corporations. Look, for, for, my entire adult lifetime for the last century. I don't know how long it, it goes back, but, um, you know, corporations have usually taken the position, look, we, we, we get involved in policy, especially as it relates to our business, but we don't get involved with politics. We give to both sides. We give to neither side. We are not a political creature. Okay. Um, we are in the business of making widgets. Uh, we want to make widgets as, as well as, well as we can to, to increase returns to our, to our owners, to our shareholders, to keep our employees uh, safe and employed and so forth. 
and we don't get involved in stuff that's outside of our lane. That is changing dramatically with ESG. Um, and it does not surprise me that, you know, the, the Republicans, because they're on the short end of the stick here, are pushing back by saying, look, you want to get involved in politics? Welcome to the game. Uh, we'd like you to come down and testify next week and tell us what you're up to, because that's that's the business. And I have to imagine, I have to imagine that the folks have made the decision to, to go down this ESG road, took that into consideration. If they really thought, if the corporate leadership of pick a company that's heavily involved in ESG, I won't pick on anybody in this podcast, said, you know what? We think we're going to get involved on these social issues and we're going to be able to do it without any you know, pushback at all from some of our political friends in Washington. That may be the most naive leadership um, mistake I've seen this century. Um, but clearly it must have happened um, because now you're seeing that the, the one group, there's, there's only a couple of groups in Washington that have no friends right now. Um, it is China, um, to a lesser extent, big tech, and then any major corporation that's gone ESG. Uh, they'll never do enough to satisfy the Democrats, and they've done enough to upset the Republicans. The chamber, U.S. Chamber of Commerce is perhaps the most poorly run organization politically that I have ever seen in my entire life. They've managed to, to alienate their base and not add, pick up any friends on the other side. And that is really, really, really hard to do. It's almost like you have to set out to do that in, in Washington, D.C. Um, there was an interview, there was an article the other day about the role the, uh, the chamber played and the, the uh, person who runs it now was asked, have they talked to Kevin McCarthy you know, since Kevin was made speaker? And the person dodged the question. And I know the answer. At least I knew the answer as of a couple of days ago, which is no chance. No Republican wants to be seen with the United States Chamber of Commerce right now. It actually hurts you in a primary. That is a tremendous destruction of the brand. And it comes from getting involved, uh, out of getting out of your lane, getting out of your depth and getting involved in politics, which is what ESG is. So it's a fascinating case study. Be curious to see where it goes from here. I don't know where corporate America goes for friends in Washington, D.C., but it could be a long road back out of the desert. Yeah, that's super fascinating. Um, all right, so I think we're going to move away from some of the substantive topics and sort of go to what we're calling our grab bag questions. Um, you, you mentioned uh, Kevin McCarthy, so I thought I'd ask you, do you miss um, being in Congress? Do you wish you were in Congress now, particularly with the, uh, you know, the speakership vote that we saw a couple weeks ago? Uh, you know, I, I miss the collegiality. Uh, you know, I miss the I miss the the men and women I worked with. In fact, that was even different from being in the administration. Administration is very hierarchical place. I had one boss, and at one point I had you know two thousand employees. Uh, on the Hill, I had five hundred thirty five colleagues. Well, I had four hundred thirty five colleagues, and then a hundred people who thought they were in the House of Lords. But that's another that's another question entirely. <laughs> um, but there is a certain collegiality in a legislative branch that doesn't exist. Um, in um, in uh, the executive branch, and certainly doesn't exist necessarily even in business, which is a little bit more you know executive sort of driven um, uh, world. Um, so I, I miss that. No, I don't miss the uh, the BS. Um, I was in Washington. I was on the floor. In fact, for a lot of the McCarthy stuff, I was in the chamber. I still have that privilege. Thankfully, once you're a member, you can always go on the floor um, and uh, participated in that was stunned by some of the similarities of what it was like when I was there and some of the differences, some of the personalities that were the same and some new folks who would come in. So it's a fascinating dynamic. I find it very interesting. Um, it's one of the reasons I enjoyed, you know, whatever work I do, I still interact with Congress a good bit because it's, it's just, it's, it's never boring. Um, but no, I, I don't, I don't want to make a living doing that. People ask me all the time if I'm going back into elected politics and I'm like, Oh, absolutely not. And they said, why not? I said, because I got tired of being nice to people that I don't like. 
Um, I'm just too old for that now. And you have to do that in a legislative branch and I'm not any good at it. So Kevin's good at it. And uh, he's managed to keep this conference together. Um, you know, he asked that he be judged by how it finishes rather than how it began. I think that's right. I think the interesting uh, um, uh, corollary to that, though, is it finished yet. Um, he's got to get through these next two years and, uh, and see what, uh, what he can do, see if he can, you know, he's going to invariably, Matt Gates is going to make the motion to vacate the chair. Uh, that was the one thing that Matt wanted. Matt insisted on a one-person threshold for that instead of five. Um, my opinion is that Matt did it because that gives Matt the ability to do it by himself as opposed to having to convince four people to go along with him. So he'll be on TV, you know, three times a week this year threatening to vacate the chair because that's what a lot of this was about, was about getting people uh, on TV, getting their Q ratings up, getting their social media up, preparing them for running for higher office, governor, Senate, president, et cetera. That kind of stuff, that that high school crap, I don't miss, um, but it's certainly still prevalent in Washington, D.C., and that's probably inevitable. Uh, so, no, I don't uh, I don't miss it, but I still enjoy watching it from a distance. Uh, all right, so we have time for, I think, one last question. So um, we'll ask you if, uh, you know, if you were stranded on a desert island, what uh, what three pieces of music would you take? Ooh, do uh, these singles, these albums, what are they? I, I, uh, up to you, up to you. Yeah, um, I would take, I would take, I would take, uh, first thing I would take would be, uh, would be, I'd take something from Dire Straits, um, probably something from the Beatles, probably the White Album because it counts as two, and then something, uh, I, is a, I still enjoy classical music, so something from Mozart because it's an interesting change of pace. So if I had three pieces of music, that would be it. Um, deep, deep, deep down in my heart, I know that I would want to put Pet Shop Boys on that list because I'm still an 80s music addict. Um, but I would never admit that in public because it really undermines my uh, my reputation. Not, not with us, or at least not with me. I can't speak for Nathan, but uh, as a child of the 80s, I uh, also think that music is uh, really underappreciated, actually. It's, it's happy, fun music. And I like, you know, for the most part, I like, listen, I like people who like what they do. I like people who are happy with their lives. I like people who are happy in their marriage. I just, it's, I think it's, it's one of those things that makes life worth living. And I think a lot of the music of that era was, 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 was just fun music. And I enjoy it. Yeah. Elliot, I, I, I think it's aged well. Go ahead. Elliot. Uh, Elliot, I think we need to talk to Bloomberg about seeing if we can get that as our opening theme song for this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it might, might be some uh, copyright issues. All right, so I think with that, we'll wrap up this inaugural episode of Votes and Verdicts. We are extremely grateful uh, to Director Mulvaney for appearing on this episode as our first guest ever and for all his uh, really um, interesting insights. Uh, so thank you, Director Mulvaney. And we thank you, the listener, for taking the time to join us as well. As a reminder, you can read all of our Bloomberg Intelligence research on the Bloomberg Terminal at BIGO. And with that, thank you and have a great day. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.